Hey guys, welcome to another edition of the Creative Imbalance Podcast. Like always, I am your host, Sean Siriani, and we got a great guest for you today. Joining me on the podcast is director Kevin Campbell, and he's got a brand new short film that is playing in the Real Asian Festival this week. So if you're listening to this episode currently, you gotta check it out. It's called Receiver, and it's a psychological horror thriller. And like nothing I ever seen before. I really, really enjoyed this one. And you're going to hear all about it on this episode. And beyond that, uh, just a great conversation. Lots of great vibes. And we dove deep to his experience within the film industry. I feel like I learned a lot <laughs> on this episode. Even beyond his own work uh, in his life. He's always on sets when he's not the director. He's doing lighting design for some of your favorite shows like Star Trek Discovery, some films like Triple X and Stephen King It Remake. And uh, yeah, he's just a great guy and full of knowledge. And also beyond talking about the film life, we dive into some rabbit holes of just psychology. And uh, yeah, because this film uh, also touches on subjects like hypnosis and it's based around a social worker. And like I said... We go deep on this one. And before we get into this one, I want to say the biggest thank you to all of you on the Patreon. I believe all six of you. (laughs) It's really appreciate that. I say this every time and you're helping me cover all these little expenses that you wouldn't even think of like doing a podcast, but they are there. And we're on the road to breaking even. (laughs) I love it. I love it. This is been such a fun journey for me and uh and shout outs to the two new patrons Devin McBride and Patrick Maloney and Patrick was also a guest on this show you got to check it out vice funnier die hilarious dude and uh, I want to get him back on but he's got like a lot of projects he's not even allowed to talk about right now so <laughs> we're just gonna play the waiting game and also biggest shout out to Jeremy Hopkin who signed up for the producer tier which makes him the co-producer of this show. And also, I think you should check out his work. I'm a huge fan of his work. Just type in Hopkin Design on Facebook. He's a graphic designer, but not only is he a graphic designer, he's also a historian. He combines the two, refurbishes old pics of the city, and tells a story where it comes from, and just amazing work. So yeah, definitely check it out. See some cool shit. And learn something or two, will ya? Alright? But that being said, that's all I gotta say for an intro. Actually, no, no, no. Once again, (laughs) I'm gonna remind you that Kevin Campbell's film Receiver is out this week playing at the Real Asian International Film Festival. Premieres on November 12th, and I believe it's playing all week. And also, prior to this, to go to the festival, you had to leave your home... But now you had to put on some pants, which we don't want to do. But now, due to the blessings of the pandemic, you don't even have to leave your house. Just look it up online and the whole festival is there online and you can watch and there's Q&As and a lot of fun stuff. So if you're kicking around the house this week and this weekend, go check out the Toronto Real Asian International Film Festival. And uh, also alongside with Kevin's film Receiver on November 15th at 10 a.m. He's also doing a Q&A for his film. So if you don't think I asked him the right questions today after you watch that film, you can do it yourself, okay? I don't know why I'm getting aggressive. I love you. And uh, thanks for tuning in to another episode. Without further ado, here's Kevin Campbell coming at you right now.
thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Exciting times. Um, you're about to have your short film at the Real Asian Festival. Um, and um, I was kind of like researching you and uh, went on your IMDb. And it, it's pretty cool. Uh, it seems like you made a transition from being on the production side to actually making your own, like being the director of a film. Like, is this uh, something new to you or? Uh, I, I'd love to say that it's a transition, but they've kind of been two streams that have been going at the at the exact same time for, for most of it. Um, yeah, I've been working for about, um, I've been working for about, uh, uh, about 18 years in, um, in, in film production. Uh, I started off working as a, um, as a, um, a set dresser and then moved into, uh, to lighting work. And so for the last like 13 years, I've been working in like lighting design and lighting and stuff at the same time as I've been, I've been working on my own projects. So it's basically like I do the lighting design stuff to pay the bills between my own projects. In an ideal world, I would be doing more of the directing and less of the lighting design than I am now. But um, the reality is it's exceptionally hard to make a living as a filmmaker in this country right now. So a lot of people who work in the industry uh, who do very creative standalone work ultimately have to um, keep themselves afloat by, by working as technicians and below-the-line artists uh, on, on American film and TV productions that shoot here. So. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's actually even, like, more common than I think people would think. Um, I've even, like, uh, had so many side hustles, and I would uh, even do, like, some rigging for, like, concerts and stuff, and then all of a sudden I just see, like, on the same shift, uh, some people, like, who were, like, the drummer of like this metal band I used to listen to and stuff. And it's just like, these bills got to be paid like in the off season when you're not touring, when you're not making films or whatever. And it's, uh, it's, uh, very common for like creatives to have like maybe like <laughs> 10 side hustles and like little things they can jump in and out of, uh, in, in the, in between time. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, to, to steal something from my, uh, to steal an aphorism from my grandfather, it would be that you got to make hay when the sun's shining, you know? And uh, the thing is, yeah, like like self-led artistic pursuits, I mean, the world over, but I would argue kind of especially in Canada right now, tend not to make a lot of money for the artist in question. So the side hustles are important because not only do they keep you afloat between your own projects, but in a lot of cases, they actually subsidize those projects. Like, so, you know, I also, I can't, I can't, I can't get too mad about the lighting work that I do because at the end of the day, I know that that work and the fact that I've attained a high enough level um, at that end of my career means that I get to subsidize projects that I really want to work on uh, of my own stuff, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it looks like you've been working on like a lot of amazing stuff, like Star Trek Discovery to like, I saw like Stephen King's uh, it reboot in there. And that's, that's so amazing. And like, and kudos to your work too. Cause those like the, the show in that, in that movie itself, like it's just lit so amazingly. Like it's really wicked. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I've been I've been lucky in the last five years to have been working on a, a bunch of really interesting shows. Um, I, I'm I'm right now working on season four of Star Trek Discovery, and I've been on it since the first season, so that's going on you know four years that I've been working on that show. Um, obviously, my part of the the lighting work for the show because shows like that are so big is obviously a, a very small part of it. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's nice to be a part of it. It's nice that the work that we do gets recognized. And I think the thing that for me is most rewarding is simply that it's nice to be on a show every once in a while that people have heard of because the job of a, a technician and a below the line artist anywhere entails ultimately doing a lot of work that people haven't heard of and is not terribly highly regarded because you do the shows that come to you and you do what pays the bills. So it's nice to, you know, most of my IMDb is filled with stuff that you've probably never heard of and wouldn't even know where to where to see. So it's nice to be in a position that people can ask me, well, what are you doing at the lighting side of things? And I can be like, oh, Star Trek Discovery. And they've actually heard of the show that I'm doing. Yeah. It's kind of a nice change of pace. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's cool that you're like, uh, even though like you make films yourself and uh, you're still under the same bubble of that industry. I know so many different creatives where like, their side hustle is something 
outside of it. So even though like you're always on sets and probably just like subconsciously continually to picking up and learning things and just seeing like things and that can only like help your own work get like super stronger. Like Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, especially in the early parts of my career when I like when I first started working in lighting, especially uh, there was a lot of there were there were a lot of lessons both to run towards and run away from that I took and, and applied to my work. So it's it's good for keeping it's good for certainly keeping you at least moderately creatively engaged uh, because you're you're still working in the same industry. You're still seeing the trends that are in operation and can have a chance, you know, to stand outside of that a little bit and and have have kind of a bit more of an objective kind of take on it when you then sit down and start to work on your own work or start to write a new script or direct something new or what have you. Yeah, definitely. And uh, today I, I watched your short film, uh, Receiver. Uh, I want to say it was really cool, really unique, um, kind of an angle of like a horror movie that I haven't seen before, which I think like, there, which is really refreshing because I feel like there's so much stuff that's continually like recycled and uh, and within a short time, it felt like you, you just told like this big tale of what was going on. And I'm also like trying not to give too much away, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was just very unique of just like the perception of an operator, uh, a telephone operator almost getting hypnotized by someone who keeps calling and getting tortured in that way and i kind of want to know where did that idea kind of spawn from yeah well so receiver as you've alluded to follows uh Sriani, who's an idealistic and very overtaxed sri lankan canadian um telephone counselor uh, on a single terrible work night uh as she's confronted by an insidious caller with the mysterious power to control her mind um where that came from is actually kind of a range of sort of personal and semi-personal uh, experiences because my girlfriend, Stephanie, works as a social worker. And at the time that my uh, co-writer on Receiver, Luke Higginson, and I were sitting down to, to start working on the film, Steph was actually working as a telephone counselor. So based on um, getting the chance to see her experiences... Uh, we really got the chance to see the level of emotional labor and empathy that's expected from from both her employers and also her clients. Um, so the more Luke and I kind of explored that, um, the more it really started to scare us. Uh, yeah. Like the more it presented for us anyway, a, a real slate of fears and dangers that arose from the whole concept of the commodification of empathy, right? Because the whole thing is that empathy is basically the, the, the bedrock of the modern social work industry. And the more we commodify somebody's empathy, uh, the more that empathy can be weaponized against them. So it became clear to us when, when we realized that that's really what the story was about, that the film was already kind of announcing the genre it wanted to be, that this wanted to be a psychological horror film. And then once the ideal genre became clear, we sat down and started looking at, at the right matching metaphor to explore these ideas. And you touched on the, the issue of hypnosis. And the thing is, a successful hypnosis subject requires a level of emotional investment that is pretty comparable to what is expected of social workers. Ah, interesting. So for us, it was, it was a way of, of, of unpacking uh, the experiences of, of, of women in the workplace, specifically through the lens of, of social work, which, as I'm sure you're probably aware, is a very gendered industry. By and large, uh, the large majority of social workers out there are women, and there is a significant amount of those who are women of color um, who end up being slotted in by society's expectations into helper positions, both informally and formally when it comes to their careers and so we thought that that would be a great opportunity to unpack those sorts of issues but do it in a way that we could have a message and have a theme that people don't expect because they don't necessarily come into a psychological horror film or a horror film of any sort 
expecting those that that kind of message so we felt like that would be a good way of slipping it in through the back door so to speak and getting getting the message getting that theme out to people who who might be going into a genre film not necessarily expecting there to be that kind of sociological meat behind it yeah definitely it's, it's really cool to hear you break down like all the extra layers of this too it's uh making me appreciate it much more when <laughs> i already appreciated the the short film in the first place but uh yeah it's also interesting to hear and just think about too like uh i know a lot of people who are social workers too and have had clients um kind of overly get attached to them and stuff because basically you're helping them and like I don't know it's like almost like it's a it's a common thing in that industry and I'm sure like even with all the the hypnosis and superpowers aside it's on the base uh scenario of that that could be a scary thing as well too depending on who your client is absolutely now to be clear for your listeners Obviously, it is a, you know, creative engineering that, that we did to the story, the whole hypnosis and manipulation angle. My girlfriend obviously did not go through any of that, but you're absolutely correct. Um, if you know social workers, if you have experience working in that or, or experience with people who work in that environment, you know that the the layers of, of um, personal interchange can get really murky especially when you're talking about telephone counseling because there is this there is this telephonic wall between people as well that that shifts the dynamic of of counselor to 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 client because of course you're you're dealing with very personal issues you have people who are on the phone perhaps pouring their hearts out and in some cases talking about literally some of the worst personal experiences that an individual can go through that that they are pouring out to you, seeking your help in whatever fashion that takes, because of course, uh, different um, counselors will work in different avenues uh, for 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 help and for assistance and with different programs. But you have people who are bearing their souls and their lives and their experiences to you. But of course, you can't you can't see them in person. And in reality, somebody could be giving you a false name, you know, if they give you a name at all. There's, there's, there's this interrupted um, social connection when you are dealing with, with counseling over the phone that I think creates a really interesting dynamic um, for both the counselor and for the client. Yeah, yeah, definitely too. And even like on the client side, I could see like some of them getting that close because they're telling you things they've never told anybody before and just, I don't know, they get, get locked in and like maybe mistake the relationship as love and that's when it gets scary, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't even have to go to that extreme. Um, I, I think any social worker who, who works in a, in a, in a call-in field will tell you that they have regular callers who call back every day or every week, even if they don't necessarily have something to talk about. Um, people that, uh, you know, that make it hard to keep that, that emotional separation up because you are, you are hearing from them, you are interacting with them over such a long time frame that it takes a huge amount of training on the part of, of social workers, I think, to um, to to be able to do the job properly, to be able to provide the requisite amounts of, of of empathy and work that it requires, while also not giving an unprofessional amount of themselves in return. Mm-hmm. And um, and and the thing is, and then you get down to the extreme examples that I, I'm I'm sure anybody who works in telephone counseling has had to deal with, which is that you have to deal with arousal callers and things like that, where you actually get individuals who are calling in to take advantage of of what could be a very one-sided relationship and you know and my girlfriend has had to deal with 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 that as well everybody who works in that field has to deal at one point or another with abusive callers we might say um you know be it arousal calling or or people who are calling to vent and want to take out their problems on on the counselor people who call and and hurl abuse at people sometimes with reason ostensibly and sometimes are literally just calling in so that they can so that they can scream at somebody on the other end of the phone there's a huge range of what people can experience um 
I've only certainly in in my life touched on a handful of that based on my research for for this film and and some some other work I did on on previous projects. But it's it seemed like a really interesting in to explore these kind of issues in that environment. And you touched on something a little earlier that you said you didn't in your experience you hadn't quite seen a film quite like a horror film quite like this. And that's a really exciting thing to hear because that was also one of the driving factors behind um, having the main character be Sri Lankan Canadian uh, is that th there's never really been a character like Suryani at the, at the head of, um, of a horror film or a psychological horror film at all. And for us, that, that seemed like a really good way of, of getting the audience to think about issues differently, to think about genre differently, because we were already presenting what, at its face, might seem like a tired concept, but presenting it through an entirely different lens by focusing on a type of character that doesn't get featured in a, in a sort of project like this that often. Yeah, it's true. It makes it actually extra scarier, too, because it seems like somebody who's just, like, especially being in the city, like, could be, like, just your neighbor and your, your apartment and everything, and it's just... Uh um it's kudos for uh like that style of casting too if it was just like the conscious thing to do and um also i want to i want to give you another kudos on making the telephone scary in a horror movie cuz i find after time just like uh as cell phones evolve too like all the horror movies the beginning has to like establish okay the phone's broken there's no signal or whatever where this the whole focus is like like the the phone is what's scary about your film which is which is wicked as well too thanks oh i mean i i feel like anybody who makes horror films ultimately has to make films that that interlock with their own personal fears and not that i'm scared of using the telephone but i hate using the phone i i i like i don't i don't enjoy the act of speaking to people over the phone it feels it's a disconcerting experience for me, I think, even in the most benign terms. And I've, I've done some reading on, on psychological reasons why people who even enjoy being social, enjoy talking to people, do not like talking on the telephone. And it's the whole fact that your brain is fooled by the fact that it feels like you are in person talking to somebody, but they are not there. Oh, there is a yeah. level of psychological incongruity that makes it an uncomfortable baseline experience for a lot of people. And that's certainly my case. And so when we got to talking, Luke and I, about this original concept, uh, it probably wasn't too much of a stretch for me to say, I think we can make the act of being on the telephone uncomfortable because that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah. It comes from like a real place. And man, I understand that too. Even um, earlier when I started doing the show too, it like I always tried to make the interviews in person, but as like the way the world shifted, obviously I got to do them on zoom calls for safety and stuff, which zoom, I don't find that bad, but um, there was a handful I did on the phone and I just like felt nervous when I shouldn't be. And it's just like, I don't know if it's just, you can't see the person's expressions or like uh, body language or whatever. It just seems like this unknown, like weird void <laughs> to me too. And it's just, it's uncomfortable in a way. I absolutely agree. And the interesting thing is that video chat doesn't fall to the same issues. Like right now you and I are speaking on zoom and I'm in no way uncomfortable with this, and I think it has to do with the fact that we are seeing each other. It's that, you know, we're hearing each other's voices, we're seeing each other, there's a level of congruity there that our brains are telling us, okay, yes, we're, we're really here sharing some kind of physical presence with this individual. Something I wanted to ask you too is, um, have you ever been hypnotized yourself? Uh, I, I sort of, uh, and I say sort of, the real answer is no. But, um, but, um, you know, those, those goofy kind of, kind of high school PE days and stuff when you have people in there, you know, you have motivational speakers in or whatever. Twice when I was in high school in, in PEI, we had, uh, we had like entertainment hypnotists who were in to just like, to, to just, you know, do a bit of a gag and blah, blah, blah. And uh, once out of that, I was I was picked from the audience to go up, and he could not successfully hypnotize me. <laughs> I I, sus I I suspect a lot of it had to do with the fact that I'm just 
I'm not an overly credulous person, and I think I brought a lot of my skepticism, even as a teenager, up onto that stage. And I just, like, I couldn't, if I can't shut off the skeptical part of my brain, I'm obviously not gonna, not gonna, gonna click with the kind of worldview that, that the, the hypnotist is suggesting, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's gonna fight it, basically. Yeah. I had a weird thing, a almost same thing, like a college assembly, and um, I didn't know what kind of hypnotist it was. It was just like me and my friend. We got in late, and uh, he was on stage, like in like this theater, and he saw that we came in late, and there was already some people on chairs about to be hypnotized. And he was just like, you two, get on stage. So I'm just like, okay. And then we're, we're like laughing. We're like, what the fuck? We think this is like a, a, a hypnosis thing or whatever. Then he started going into his thing. And um, for probably about 30 seconds, I actually went under. And then I, I came out of it. And all around me in the chairs was everybody just kind of nodded off like sleeping. And um, he's doing his, like, whole gimmick, just, like, uh, speaking in his monotone, soothing voice. And then he noticed, like, I woke up, like, kind of confused. And as he was doing his act, he kept pointing at me and being, like, like, uh, for people listening to the audio version, I'm, like, kind of giving, like, uh, a sign, like, get off the stage. But he, he, and I was confused. I didn't know what's going on. (laughs) And then after a moment, I'm just, like, oh, okay, I'm, like. He noticed like I'm not under and then I, I just uh, got off the stage and I just started watching it and thank God I woke up. It was like one of these uh, X-rated uh, hypnosis dudes and he was everybody by the end of it was just like humping their chairs and just, <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God, I was saved. But Your subconscious saved you from the embarrassment with your student body. Yeah, yeah. And that's the only time I've ever had like... Um, an experience like that and like you too i was uh, like skeptical i always thought like there was like on these things that i would see on tv with hypnosis i'm like oh they must be plants or whatever but um it felt like for like a good moment i actually went down for the count which is frightening that humans have the power to do that (laughs) like wow well well in the research that we did for for receiver when it came to the whole hypnosis angle um I mean, there's ultimately a lot of things that films get wrong about hypnosis, but I do believe hypnosis works. You just, you have to be a person who's going to go along with it. I mean, sort of tying into my my earlier point about the overlap between like a successful hypnosis subject and a social worker is both of those involve you basically buying into to the world that is being spun for you by the person you are speaking with, right? Mm, you have yeah. to... Ultimately, as a successful hypnosis subject, you have to accept the presentation of the world, this ultimately imaginary um, world that the that the stage hypnotist is presenting to you. Um, and if you can't buy into that, then you will not be successfully able to to go under. And um, and accordingly, it's like you know, people can't be hypnotized into into doing things that they would never actually do based on the research that I've done. And there's also an interesting thing came up for me in the research, which was that um, most successful hypnosis revolves not around um, directly influencing the person to do X. It's not about, oh, if I want you to do X, I'm going to tell you to do X. Because as I understand, that typically doesn't work. The successful way of achieving this is to spin a set of circumstances that you can... That you, that you can get the individual to buy into that lead them in the direction of doing the thing that you want them to do. Which, ah. interestingly, is not actually dissimilar to being a director in stage or in film. Because you, you, that's kind of the way that you work with actors. That's not to suggest that directors go around hypnotizing their actors. <laughs> but the, one of the most successful ways of, of getting an actor to... to um, to get in the right headspace that you want is you set up a set of circumstances for them. Um, you know, the strategy I use, that certainly it's not by any means anything I invented. It's been used for, for, for decades uh, within, within stage and film. Um, but it is basically to ask, like, what ifs? Like, or to suggest what ifs. So, you know, what if your character had just come back from the gym when this scene opens? What if you had just been listening to this piece of music? You know, you're suggesting these these um, sideways circumstances that you can get 
your performer to buy into that then lead them in the direction that you want them to go in. And that's much more successful than telling an actor, I want you to cry when you say this line. Yeah, yeah. It's and much like, three, two, action, okay, go. It's like, why aren't you yeah. crying? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a horrible way of trying to, of trying to elicit an emotional response uh, from a performer of any sort. So it's much more successful to set up a set of circumstances. Like, if you wanted an individual to cry, you might suggest, well, what if at this line you were thinking about the death of your childhood pet or something like that? Mm -hmm. So I found that kind of interesting that there's ultimately a bit of overlap in terms of how directors tend to work with, with actors and also how stage hypnotists work with their subjects. Oh, that's amazing. And it sounds like it would be awesome to be on like a set with you too, just kind of just like how you break it down like that too. It's just uh I don't know. It's uh it's it sounds cool and and obviously like um it's also what's interesting too as you compare like being a director with a hypnosis type of person um it's almost like you have to trust them and like go into their world in a way because um i'm sure like an actor and an actress especially if it's their first time working with you and everything they don't know how the film's actually going to look or how it's going to be edited or whatever and you have to like get them fully into that space and they have to have um like a moment where they just kind of just let go and just dive into it and hope for the best you know it, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, in both of those kinds of relationships, trust is, to my way of thinking, absolutely paramount. And you're, de I mean, I can speak less in terms of the hypnotic relationship because I'm not a stage hypnotist, but when it comes to the relationship between directors and actors, you are absolutely correct. The interesting thing, though, is even if a, a, a performer has worked with a director before, they're still not going to know how the film is going to be cut together. Uh, you you never ultimately know that. Unless, of course, either A, you have a relationship with the, with the director where the director invites you into the editing room, or B, if you were a big enough star that you can just say, I want to be involved in the editing process, which for um, established enough actors um, who may or may not work as their own producers, that is obviously a possibility. But for most of the other relationships that exist between between directors and and performers, um, yeah, the performer has to trust the the director because you have to trust them in the moment uh, that they are not going to give you direction that's going to lead you away from the ideal performance that you're both going for, and not going to give you direction that's going to lead you to do something foolish. Um, but then, of course, you have anywhere between a couple of months to a couple of years after your part of the film is basically done, that the director goes away with completely different people and makes the film. You know, Orson mm, yeah. Welles uh, had a line that I, I think about quite often, which is that every, every film is actually three films. You write one film, you direct a second, and you edit a third. Uh, and the yeah. thing is, you, you know, your actor is present occasionally for the writing, so occasionally for the first, for the first film you're making, they're always present for the second film that you're making, and they're rarely ever present for the third one. So, yeah, performers have ultimately got to trust that the director is going to do their performance justice by the time that they're cutting the third film uh, when they're making a project. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's really cool to hear you break it down that way, too. It's uh, one thing I know. Um, I get, like, so many different artists, not just, like, in film. Like, I've had comedians on here, musicians, too. And... Um, there seems to be like an overlap of, I don't know, the inspiration people get when um, they talk about like the nitty gritty of the art form and kind of breaking it down like that. It's, it's, it's cool. Like, uh, um, and, and yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to, uh, I want to ask to, um, did receiver kind of turn out how you thought it would, like you said, there's like the, the three stages of making it like as you were writing it like by the editing time was done was it the thing that you imagined it to be or did it turn something into something else along the way it it mostly i would say it's about 80 percent the film i envisioned it being which to my way of thinking is a tremendous success because every film becomes something different in the editing room Every film ends up in a position that there are happy and unhappy accidents that take place on set. 
that you can't do anything about. The thing is, no matter what scale of filmmaking you're doing, there's never enough time and there's never enough money. So you always end up in a position of creative compromise when you're on set. Um, you know, different directors are, are better or worse at being willing and able to compromise creatively. For me, because I have so much experience working um, at another side of film production, I, you know, I know that compromise is an inherent part of it. So I, I have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C at any given time. So that, I think, helps. By the time I get my work into the editing room, it's usually most of the way towards one of those three plans. <laughs> But of course, there's still there's still curveballs that get thrown at you um, with uh, with regularity, and um, and you have to roll with the punches. A at the end of it, by the time the film is in the can, so to speak, and you're in the editing room, most uh, it's, especially independent films do not have the money to go back and reshoot mm, uh, yeah. things that did not work. Now, you know, high budget. Features and, you know, studio um, features and television projects, uh, they usually have the money to, to reshoot a certain amount of material, and they oftentimes build it into their budget a set number of reshoot days. But for independence, that's basically impossible. So by the time you get the work into the editing room, it's all about cutting it in a way that makes the best possible film of what you've got left, so to speak. Not to sound defeatist about it, but at yeah. the end of the day... It is not useful by the time you get into the editing room to continue going back to the script. The script is now done. It's two films ago by the time you get into the editing room. So you've got to just look at what you shot and what you have available. And there's obviously interesting creative options that can come out in terms of what you can do with uh, sound and with dialogue replacement and with music. You can, and certainly with, with visual effects, that you can you know, you can really shift the, 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 the tone of shots and sequences quite a bit by the time you get into the editing room. But often for independence, you can't go back and reshoot what, what you got. And you can't go back and shoot what you missed. So you've got to find a way of making it with the stuff that you come out of principal photography with. And that's why for me, it feels like an absolute necessity that it's like you've got to have other plans. Because if you just go in with like, what is the film I want to make? What is my A plan? Guess what? You're never going to get that. Nobody ever does. Even on big features, big television projects, you never get you never get plan A to go ahead. It never works like that. You are at the mercy of uh, your crew. You are at the mercy of time. You are at the mercy of weather. You are at the mercy of a whole lot of things you can never control, even if you have seemingly all the money in the world. So you've got to make alternate plans so you can have a, a, a clear and I think a... Uh, a concise set of choices to take into the editing room. Because if you don't, then it means you get what you get and you've got to then figure out what plan B is going to be on the basis of what you got because you didn't actually get most of plan A, you know? Yeah, true, true. And um, I I haven't been really like in the film world, but I've been shooting like in like the music video side of things too. And uh, like you mentioned, like a lot of like indie artists too, and that feeling where you know you only have this one day or this one take or whatever, there's something just so exciting about that to me where it's just like uh, it's like the do or die moment type of thing. And uh, did you feel like that way with uh, with building receiver as well? Did you have like a short time to like put this together and just try Absolutely. to bang it out? Yeah. Yeah, we had we had three days to shoot receiver uh, and a lot of material to get through, particularly because. I was very adamant from the beginning in terms of how we were designing the look of the film that we would not just be shooting, you know, at eye level in close up of, of uh, Suriani. That, you know, we had to break things up. Uh, there, you probably noticed there's a lot of high and low angle shots in the, in the film that was very intentional on my part in terms of like how to design the look of the film. And the thing is, those shots are complicated to set up. Oh, you know? I can imagine. So, so we had a lot of material to get through. And the thing is, there was also quite a lot of very fraught emotional material that, that Tahereh Vejdani, my lead actress, had to get through. Like, there's a huge range of emotional tonality that the, that the arc of Suriani covers over the course of the film. And the thing is, unless you're going to do a complete disservice to the performer and the performance, you have to allow the time to get the actor there. 
Mm. Now, part of what helps is that we had we had three days of rehearsal in advance. I'm I'm very big on the idea of doing rehearsal and doing uh, story development with 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 actors before I start shooting. But at the end of the day, you still need to allow enough time for the actor to get from point A to point B to point B Z. You know, and um, the more emotional and the wider the range of the the emotional content that the actor has to get through, the more time you kind of have to budget for it. Unless, of course, you're you're just you know, you got a day and you get what you get. And then, you know, you're probably going to do a disservice to the performance that way. So it was a complicated film, both both artistically and technically. And yeah, we only had three days to do it. Yeah. So I came in, like I said, with a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. And uh, uh, building my shot list, I, I built it with my, my editor and my script supervisor. Um, the great thing is my editor on this film was Luke Higginson, who is also my co-writer on it. So... He had a very good sense of, of what we needed to take away from the script and what were the things we absolutely had to keep and what were the things that would be nice to have and what are the things that we could ditch if it comes down to it. So we had a plan going in from the very beginning and it's like I was constantly revising the shot list as the days went on when I just... Luke was rarely on set as the editor. He was there a couple of times briefly, but I was constantly working with my uh, script supervisor, Sean Edward, and just going through saying, okay... We're doing this shot. Maybe we can adjust the tail end of it to catch this piece of action that I want to get. And then that'll allow me to cut these two shots. And just running that by her and she'd make suggestions. And it was great interplay. And frankly, it's the thing that allowed the film to come together as it did is that kind of flexibility. Yeah, yeah. And I, I want to say you guys killed it too. It's uh, the I got the the early watch of the final product. And to, it's it's cool to hear like uh, how little time you had to put this together. And uh from you guys setting up like a lot of complicated uh, shots, as you mentioned, um, it's very like visually interesting, kind of trippy here and there. And um, the main actress, she absolutely killed it. Like I got lost in her character, and her emotions were believable too. Which I'm not an actor, I, I can imagine like how hard and taxing that is to like present like fear and like tears and everything and. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't even imagine. So kudos to all of you for, like, killing this movie. It's fucking awesome. Thank you. Yeah, Tahereh was an absolute joy for me to work as work with as a, as a director. She's, you know, an exceptionally sensitive and creative and really precise performer. Um, she did a huge amount of research and preparation to get ready for the, the role, and she put in so much work and created an environment where I was constantly challenged to up my game as a, the director, which I know sounds to, to a layperson like that might be a problem, but no, that's great. You, you want to be going in there having somebody who is constantly challenging you as a collaborator. And, um, you know, and the thing is, I, I think it needs to be said that she is the only actor that's on screen. All of the other, uh, all of the other characters are all off screen. They're all heard through the telephone. So she is basically carrying the entire film on her shoulders and on her face and on her body. And um, it was a big job. And I think that's, I, I think it was made by the fact that she is just naturally so prepared and so precise. Um, so for me, like, I find being on set really stressful. Uh, when I'm <laughs> the guy who has to ultimately make the decisions that I have to live with when I get into the editing room, it's a lot of stress. I tend to not eat very much. I don't get a lot of sleep. I am constantly thinking and revising things because there's like, there's 17, 20, 30 balls that you've got to keep in the air as a director, even on a relatively small project. But Receiver, for me, was an absolute joy to come to work. Not because any of my stress was taken away, but just because I got the chance to watch Tare work through the monitor. And that's like, and that was just a thrill for me as, a, as somebody who loves film, getting to see somebody who was just so in tune with performance and with emotion and with characterization and just with giving all of it to the camera like a hundred percent of the time she was she was great yeah yeah that's gotta be awesome too when you you cast somebody and then it's the day of and you're like oh my god she's killing it right now this is exactly what i want for this scene and everything so uh yeah yeah once again that's cool and um 
this film it is going to be in a little festival am i correct uh the real asian yeah festival? actually not such a little festival uh, yeah yeah i don't know why i put the word little in there but uh it's more um can, can you kind of give me more like uh, details on this too uh i've I'm familiar with it, but for somebody who's not familiar with it, I also know uh, this year they're doing things differently because of uh, the state of the world and everything. But Absolutely. So the festival where Receiver will be premiering, um, the premiere is, is at the, um, the Toronto Real Asian International Film Festival. Um, it's a very well-established festival. It's going on 25 years now that it's been around. Uh, it is the largest Pan-Asian film festival in the country. And I believe the second largest in, in, in North America. And it's like, it's the third largest film festival in the city. So it's, um, it's, it's pretty well established. They are going, yes, as you suggested, because of COVID and the pandemic this year, uh, Real Asian is going entirely virtual. Um, all of the screenings will be available to, uh, to, to individuals from all across Canada, which is, which is great. Um, the festival opens on November 12th at 10 a.m. And that's when all of the programs start screening, including Receiver. So Receiver premieres in the Film Frenzy program, uh, starts screening on November 12th at 10 a.m. and goes clear through until uh, the very end of uh, November 19th at the, um, uh, at, the, uh, at the end of the festival. And the other cool thing, though, is that on November 15th at 10 a.m., Tare and myself are going to be taking part in a live Q&A done over Zoom, I believe, um, where we're going to get a chance to, to talk to ticket holders about um, about the process of making the film. Oh, that's so awesome. And yeah, like uh, leading towards it, I think uh, probably uh, maybe next week, just a little bit before the festival starts, we'll get this episode out and uh, I'll continue to remind people to check it out because it's a great thriller. It's, it's something, uh, again, like I love... Uh, promoting things that uh that's something that's very original and that i haven't seen before and uh and yeah yeah you guys just killed it and uh and everything thanks no it's it's always it's great to it's great to hear that trying something different works you know because it's always i don't want to say a struggle that's probably overselling it but until the first members of an audience that are not related to the filmmaker and not related to the film see it it is genuinely hard to know if it is working and getting across to the audience what you had intended for it to get across. So it's it's really rewarding to have you know a range of different types of audiences be able to see it. And uh, thus far, the response has been good. But I guess I guess we'll know more um, on uh, on November twelfth when people people at large get to start seeing the film at Real Asian. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And like, hopefully it can get in some more fests this year. Uh, I know it's been so weird. And usually around this time too, uh, I get hit up by a bunch of like the horror circuit. There's like a horror-rama thing. There's a blood in the snow, which I think they might be doing digitally too. But it was, it's, uh, it's, uh, I could see this film like playing at all those and like fit perfectly. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, so maybe, uh, down the road or next year or something, you can keep, uh, keep putting this out and like uh, getting more people to see it yeah well we've got we've got um a couple of film festivals that have have already uh invited us i'm still under embargo so i can't talk about them yet yeah but, right uh, we, we do have a few coming coming down the pipe um in the new year and there there's still more we're waiting to hear back from so i think with 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 luck uh come december and beyond we're we're gonna be we're gonna be around a little bit more but I suppose in the interim, uh, if anybody's looking for more information, um, you can find my website at www.interlockpictures.com. There's information about my previous films. There's more information about Receiver on there. Um, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Interlock Pictures. And um, if you want to listen to, to my personal noodlings, uh, you can find me on Twitter at CCAM Operator. Yes, awesome. I'm actually going to follow all of these right when I turn this uh, interview off. Uh, I'm a new fan, and I just want to thank you for your time, Cav, and thanks for uh, showing me a brand new awesome movie, and uh, all the best going into this festival. Thank you, Sean. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for uh, for inviting me on to, to chat with you. Yeah, awesome. We'll have to do a part two for your next film, too. I hope so.
Revolution.